Well, good morning, Austin Oaks Church. How are we doing? Anybody pull out their long johns? What in the world? This is like a 40 to 50 degree temperature swing, and then it's going to swing right on back as if, like, we're not battling with an illness floating around right now in Austin. Anywho, I'm just killing time in hopes that something comes up on screen, all that kind of stuff. Um, Hey, I want to let you know, we started last week, I'm, I'm doing a, a, a podcast that we're calling Left Unsaid. And so in other words, it's extra material that I had in my notes from the previous week of study on this sermon that's just going to go a little bit deeper, ask different questions, pull up different verses. And it's also a way for me to kind of like have a little bit of peace of mind that I don't have to get everything out in my notes, to which everybody in here said amen. So I want to encourage you to um, go on our website, Facebook, look for that left unsaid if you want to go further into this message. Now, if you are in middle school or high school, any uh, youth students in this room? Okay, did anybody know that we have a pop star in our midst? Okay, does anybody know the reference here? Come on. I live with a Swifty, and I could vomit out. I, I just, I'm just kidding. You know, Taylor Swift is great and everything, but I just love this. I love Kel's creativity, but I do want to encourage you, if you're in middle school or high school next weekend, you should and ought to be at the youth retreat. I really want to encourage you to do that. These are significant moments when you get to get away from all the things and just like spend focused and concentrated time on Jesus. And it, I'm telling you right now, you're not going to regret going homework. Sorry, parents. Homework can take a back seat to the youth retreat. Just saying. My assistant will deal with those emails. All right, so we are now in week two of this sermon series, More Than Enough, and um, I just want to let you know my technology failed me, so I had to go analog, so I'm on paper trying to figure this all out, so this should be really, really fun this morning. Um, But as I was thinking about this topic this morning, I was (laughs) reflecting on the Declaration of Independence and thinking through like that statement of our inalienable rights, like the the right to liberty right, uh, life and the pursuit of happiness, and just starting to think like how those three words, those three phrases have dramatically actually like shaped and form American culture. It is like the bedrock principle of everything that we have become. And so as I started to reflect on that a little bit more, like it just like dawned on me because now being a parent, I'm feeling this with my own kids, that we live in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with excelling. It's part of this pursuit of happiness. And so we want to excel. We want to perform. We, we got to get good grades. We got to be, you know, past the star test. I don't know what the star test is, but it causes a lot of anxiety in the Ziski household when it comes around. Like, we, we got to get that. We got to excel at work. We got to excel in our athletics. Like, my goodness, if my kids don't get the right team or not the right training, and when they're seven and eight years old, they got the wrong coach, it's going to ruin their chance to go pro. Ah, here's talking to you, Texas. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm totally victim. But it's like we are such 
part of this performance-based culture, not there's anything inherently bad with it. It's actually inherently good. We were created to have ambition and passion and drive. Like that should be a good and noble thing to excel in these aspects. But we start to think about it. There are moments though when this pursuit of whatever it is can actually be negative, right? Like, just think about the things that it causes us to invest in. Like, we have to invest in a lot of time in whatever it is that we're trying to excel in energy and money in order to get there. You got to spend extra money and time on lessons. There's people who will literally move to a certain neighborhood in order to get into a certain school. You got to get that certain GPA. You got to have a SAT or an ACT or whatever test they are now in order to get into that college, get that scholarship, get that promotion, get that house, get that car, get that relationship, so on and so forth. Nothing inherently wrong. But we do need to have a healthy perspective, expectation, and outcome as what we are expecting as a return in this pursuit. Our culture rewards it, it validates it, and it even expects it. Coming from the north, okay, I know I already made this joke, but like I want to lean into like coming from the north, like we only knew about the intensity of Texas sports through TV shows and movies. Like that's all we knew. And so like I never quite like understood the, the, the craze of youth sports until we got here and um, we participated in youth sports. Like it is insane how intense and how competitive youth sports are. Like I get it. Like if the kid's like older and it's like maybe you're like at that next level or preparing to get to that next level, the kids are competitive. The kids are eager to excel and to be great. They're that as a young age. But I'm telling you right now, it's crazy to think that the parents are way more passionate for their youth in that sport than the youth is. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like, I remember, like, when Braden, like, his first year in coach pitch baseball, parents would get in a fight in the stands. No joke. And I was just like, what is going on? And then within three weeks, I was part of it. I'm just, just saying. But like, this drive to excel really has and causes a significant impact, quite frankly, on parents a lot of times that then kind of translates onto the kids. This performance culture is so thick this drive to excel. I got three kids and two of our kids are in programs where they, they want to excel in and we're investing time and energy and money into all of those things. Like, and we, we are applauding it. We're like, go for it. You're talented. Let's do it. You know, but there's this nagging thought in the back of my mind constantly as I keep thinking about all of the hours of driving and all of the dollars that are being invested. And so like I started to like make this statement specifically to my son and I get it, I get it. Like all of these things are good. It's character building. It teaches good values and blah, blah, blah. I get it. But I have this running joke with my son or at least he thinks it's a joke. I told him if he goes pro, 40% of his salary is mine because that's the return on my investment. And he thinks I'm kidding, but honestly, I'm not. I'm like, no, you owe me. You owe me. These two words, these two concepts, I want to have on the forefront of our minds. Excel and ROI. Return 
an investment. In order to excel in something, you have to invest in that something. And there's an expected return that you are looking for. That's kind of the the outcome that's there. Both of these concepts really influence much of what we do and much of what we hope to expect in life. They're inherently good. They're wise concepts to think through in order to process how to make the best decision, where to invest the best use of our time, the best use of our talents, and yes, even our finances. We look at savings and investments, and we think about it like, you know, should be carefully and wise, and not only that, we look at like how much money we can afford based upon loans and interest rates, and we want to find an investment that gives a safe and, and secure return on investment. Constantly, we are thinking in this way. Now, the kingdom of God cares very, very much about these two concepts. Very much. Excelling in ROI. We are exhorted in scripture to excel in love, excel in serving, excel in our knowledge of God and doctrine. We are encouraged and exhorted to invest our lives into the kingdom of God, quite frankly. Jesus taught these parables about how, like, how the kingdom of God is of infinite value. It's like a man who found this treasure in a field and he buried the treasure in that field and he went home and sold everything he had in order to buy that field because of that treasure that was there. That, that's a, an investment. That's like saying like it's worth selling all of this in order to get this because there's going to be a different and better return. This is so significant. Jesus taught this as well regarding his own life. It, like almost as a reference to this is what I am investing my life in. In John chapter 12, verse 23 through 25. He says this, speaking now about his, his death. He goes, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. That's like Jesus saying, like, if I invest my life into myself only, it doesn't produce The return on that is empty. But if I give my life, if I invest my life for the sake of others, and he's talking about his death, here's like, it will produce a way of life. It will produce the means by which they can receive salvation through grace by faith. Like he understood this principle because he goes on, the one who loves his life will lose it. If it's all about you and everything you're excelling in is all about you and you're just going to invest in everything about you, well, you're going to lose it. But the one who's willing to give up his life for the sake of other will find it and keep it for eternal life. This is beautiful. This kingdom concept of excelling and a return on investment, and I'm going to start switching that to return on grace. Cheesy, I know. Deal with it. It works in my head. It's it's an absolutely beautiful piece because we need to understand that Jesus invested grace into us. He invested grace into us. And there's an expected return on that. It won't be forced. It won't be commanded. It will be something that compels us from inside. It's beautiful. The grace of God 
compels us to excel in grace. This is the ROG, as it were, the return on grace that Jesus expects. That when we experience and understand the grace of God, it begins to compel us to want to excel in the grace of God. And this is what we need to focus on this morning. This concept, I'm telling you right now, if you allow yourself to hear what the Lord would have for you, will dramatically change how you see your finances. It will free you up from the anxiety and the, the, the greed that can get the best of us, the constant sense of like, like fear of what will happen, where will this go, all these unknowns. It will actually produce an abundance of joy in your life more than you could ever imagine. Peter in first... Or, it's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He starts talking about like how we experienced the, the, God's divine power. We experienced salvation through his grace. And we've been given everything we need pertaining to this life and godliness. It's like we have received the grace of God. So therefore, allow God's grace to compel you to excel in these things. He's saying, so now add to your faith this. And add to this that. And add to this that. And he says, and if you keep increasing these in measure, it will keep you from being unproductive and unfruitful in your knowledge of him. Grace compels us to desire to want to excel in God's grace. This is so incredibly important. So incredibly important. Last week, we talked about the significance of how money and our heart is connected. And if you weren't with us last week, I want to encourage you, go last week and listen to that sermon. Because there was this challenge in there when God was like saying, hey, return to me and I'll return to you. Like this is grace inviting us into relationship. Return to me and I'll return to you. And the people rhetorically say, well, how can we return? Because they think they're all fine. We're doing all the religious things. And he's like, hey, will people rob God? Well, how are we robbing you? By your tithes. And we ask the question, is it really money that God is concerned with? And the answer is no. It's about relationship Return to me, and I'll return to you. It just so happens that the reality is money and giving is oftentimes the most concrete and tangible expression of our love to God and our trust in God. It is the number one competitor for your heart. It is a fierce competitor. We think about it so often. But when the grace of God, when the grace of God gets you, when you understand and experience the grace of God, his overflowing and ever-abundant grace in your life, something dramatically has to change. So what I want to answer this morning is this. What does a church look like that excels in grace? What does a church look like that excels in grace? grace. So if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And as you turn there, I want to set the scene of these two chapters because context is important. I want to encourage you, when you study scriptures, 
Do your best to, to discover what the context is of that letter. What's happening? Who's he writing to? Where's he writing to? All those types of things are extremely important for us to be able to interpret God's word. What we see immediately in this chapter are four different churches that are at play. The first and most obvious is the church in Corinth. This is the one whom Paul is writing this letter to. They are the recipients of this letter. They're affluent. They're very wealthy. They have positions of influence. They're primarily Greek and Gentile believers who have trusted on Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and newness of life. The other three churches are bundled up together as the churches in Macedonia. The three churches are the church in Thessalonica, First and Second Thessalonians, the church in Berea, and the church of Philippi, which is also the letter of Philippians. Like You will see all three, four of these play out. In these two chapters, about a year ago, Paul in the church in Jerusalem began to ask for an offering because of what was happening in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was struggling financially due to the fact that church growth was expanding. Right? Like when the Holy Spirit came and they preached and Peter talked about like, you know, there's no other name under heaven by which men will be saved. Repent and believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins. 3,000 people were added to their number and the church just kept multiplying and multiplying and people came from all over the place and they wanted to stay more than likely to learn more about Jesus, learn more about the kingdom of God. So they stayed, but the problem was like Jerusalem's not a boom town. There's not like this growing industry, Elon Musk didn't plant something in Jerusalem that they could get jobs. There was no jobs that were present. And not only that, as they converted to Jesus, their families, if they didn't convert, more than likely alienated themselves from them so they didn't have the financial means to be able to survive in Jerusalem. They couldn't get jobs. They were extremely busy. So not only are the visitors into Jerusalem experiences experiencing this. I'm willing to bet that even the apostles are experiencing this. And they tried valiantly to be generous and to meet the needs of the church. Acts 2 and Acts 4, they gave to all which had need. They were willing to sell land and property and all this kind of stuff so that there would be no need amongst them. But the need had to have kept on growing that Paul and others felt the need to encourage other churches in the known world at that time to have an offering for the church in Jerusalem. So about a year ago, the church in Corinth was like, yes, we're all in, we'll do this. And they like, um, like pledged, as it were, to give a generous gift to the church in Jerusalem. So Paul leaves, false teachers come into the church. They accuse Paul of being a false teacher, a false apostle, because he's not a good orator. He's a poor speaker. He doesn't have public speaking skills, but he's sharp as a tack. He suffers, and leaders don't suffer. He struggles. Leaders shouldn't struggle, so obviously he doesn't have God's blessing. And then they actually began to accuse him of potentially dipping his hand into the offering plate, as it were, so that way he could pad his own pockets. So the church in Corinth had the desire to give, but because of this situation, they chose not to. And so Paul, chapters 1 through 7, is really going about a justification for his right as an apostle and assuming their relationship is restored. And then he turns this corner here. Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given 
to the churches of Macedonia. We want you to know. I want you to know about the grace of God that was given to the churches in Macedonia. What is this act of grace? What is this grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia? Austin Oaks, I'm telling you, you ask the best questions. So let me attempt to answer that for you. Paul is saying, Corinth, look at these three churches. I want you to see the grace of God that was given to them. Okay. We have to ask the question and try to answer, what is this exactly? What is this grace? The first thing you need to notice is that this grace was given by God. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. It's God saying, I am willing to invest my grace into you. It was given to them, not because of anything that they were, but God gave it to them. And that allowed them to experience and to know him, to enjoy him, to find life and freedom in him, to find purpose and true meaning in him, a peace that surpasses everything that the world can literally dump on you. The grace of God that was given to them. Yes, it speaks of salvation, but it also speaks of something else. Now, if we look at verse 2, we're going to start to get a glimpse as to what this grace is. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Church, I so badly want you to be great Bible students. When you read something like this, you have to slow down. Don't just keep reading. Put yourself in that situation. Look at these words. A severe trial. Multiple trials. Multiple persecutions. The Greek word gives us this concept of a crushing. Like a weight of oppression on them. Over and over and over. And you know that's true because they're under Roman rule and they kept ransacking the Macedonians. They took over their, their areas of wealth, which were primarily their mines of silver and gold. They kept them out of employment. This was like economic oppression on them. But it was also a spiritual persecution. And if that wasn't enough, extreme poverty... They don't even know where their next meal is. Can you imagine as parents starting to go, man, I don't know how I'm going to feed my kids. I don't know where I'm going to get that next job. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the future looks like. And you start wondering, what should I do with the little bit that I do have? Like, just, you got to feel this because it starts out, church in Corinth, I want you to be aware of the grace of God that was given to them. Out of their severe trials and extreme poverty overflowed, like their abundant joy and extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That is not logical. But nothing about the grace of God is logical. So how did this church understand this? How did they have this abundant joy? How is that possible? In crushing circumstances, in absolute destitute poverty, abundant joy 
overflowing in a wealth of generosity on their part. What did they do? What did they do? Like, that's what I keep thinking about. I started asking myself this question. What, did, what would I do? What would my faith do? Where would the eyes on my heart begin to look? Where would I start to trust in? Would I start to think through the way that the world thinks through and strategies of how maybe I need to relocate and get a different job or all this kind of stuff? Maybe I need to take the few little pennies that I have left and shove it underneath my mattress for good time or old times. Like, who knows? What would I do? Did they put faith in themselves, in the ways of this world, or did they invest their faith into the grace of God? Their abundant joy and extreme poverty, that phrase has been hitting me all week. Abundant joy, extreme poverty. That's what the return on grace looks like. Abundant joy. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't... Look at how scriptures talk about this. They didn't have a lot of money, but yet it says they gave a wealth of generosity. I implore you, it's not about the dollar amount. It's about the heart. It's about the posture. How could Paul else say they gave an abundance or a wealth of generosity when they don't even have money for their next meal? What is that telling us? It was the grace of God given to them that no matter what circumstances it was, nothing could touch the grace of God in their life. So therefore, because they know what they received, the riches of Christ, salvation, joy, peace, and inheritance that will never spoil or perish as an heir of God, like all of these things are like, this is great. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me. I'm enjoying God, and I know he enjoys me. Look at his love and abundance of joy regardless of the circumstance. That's why I said last week that no matter what our circumstance is, it should never affect our generosity. It should never affect our generosity. Because if it does, guess what? We're putting our faith in the things of this world and ourselves. We're not trusting in God. This is clear. God had their heart. God had their heart. An abundance of joy. A wealth of giving. Jesus pours out his grace in absolute abundance. And that results in overflowing joy. So you've got to ask yourself the question, where is the joy in your life? Sometimes children's songs are the best. Some of you know exactly what song just popped in my head randomly. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Right? And, and we, we come into church bored. What do they know that we forget? What did they experience that we so often miss? These are the questions we have to be asking. They believed. This is why they were able to have an abundance of joy. An overflowing wealth of generosity is because they believed 
that God will give back in abundance. They believed it. They believed it wholeheartedly. I'm going to give beyond my means, and I know God's got me. Luke 6, verse 38, give, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. When you read scriptures about giving, it's almost as if God is constantly daring you to trust him. Trust me, I will give you in abundance. I just want your heart. Trust me, I will give in abundance. Give, trust me, over and over and over and over. Like they believed this, Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This was written to the letter to the church in Philippi, one of the churches in Macedonia, teaching them that God will provide everything for you. And they're like, awesome. Who cares about these trials? And who cares about the poverty I am not letting it touch my joy, and I'm going to continue to overflow in that joy by having this overflow of wealth of generosity. Because it's a reflection of the grace of God given to them. Man, they were faithful in the little. Remember last week where we said, what is the little? The little is worldly wealth, money. Not dollar amount, as if if I'm faithful with a little bit of dollar amount, I'll be faithful with more dollars. No, if you're faithful with money, then God will entrust you with true riches. Like, there's a special and unique blessing for those who choose the life of generosity. You can't miss that. Verse 3, I testify according to their ability and even beyond their ability. Like, you can almost just, like, say, even though scriptures don't, like, in the New Testament, command a tithe. This is almost like suggesting, like, giving, like, according to their ability. It's almost like saying, like, their tithe, but even beyond their ability. They gave beyond what they could probably give. I mean, that's, that's a crazy thought. Of their own accord. <laughs> they did this on their own. Motivated from the love of God, the grace of God invested inside of them, compelled them to want to excel in grace. They weren't manipulated. They didn't have to sit through a cheesy timeshare presentation. They didn't get like guilt tripped by Sarah McLaughlin and puppies. Like they didn't feel guilty. They didn't get a false teaching about health and wealth. So it was seed. None of that. It was the grace of God that moved them that they said, we don't care how much it's going to cost us. We don't care if we have to live with less we have this abundant joy and we know he's going to give us far beyond what we could ask or imagine. <laughs> That's the grace of God given to them. It's beautiful. They begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. I've been a pastor for nearly 20 years. I've never once had the church beg me to give. Next Sunday's a great time to start. I'm just, sorry. Like, this almost gives us a sense like Paul didn't have any intention to ask them because he didn't want to put that burden on them. They came to Paul pleading, Paul, give us an opportunity to participate in this. Give us the opportunity to, to worship God with our giving. They considered it a privilege to give. 
This is not like our cultural definition of privilege where they get some special standard and some like head start in life. No, this is like the privilege is like we get the ability to bless others because of what God has given us so that we can also then receive a different blessing from God. We want to be part of this, Paul. Let us be part of it, Paul. Paul, let us give. They begged to share in this privilege. I love it because now Paul goes on in verse 5. And they did this not just as we hoped. Like that, that is like this little phrase where Paul's like saying like, I, I really, he has a pastor's heart here. He's like, I really want them first to be simply about Jesus. I don't want them to give out of compulsion. I don't want the, them to give out of regrets. Like I, I like wanted them to like give out of the overflow of their relationship with Jesus. And he's like, and they did this just as we hope. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord. Like they, they were simply about Jesus. They were in love with Jesus because they knew the love of God that they had for them. They were experiencing the grace of God and that began to overflow. It began to compel them to want to excel in the grace of giving. And then they gave themselves to us by God's will. That's another way of saying, and then they submitted to the church leadership. First to the Lord and then to the leadership. And he goes on, verse 7, as you excel in everything. He's not flattering them. He's being honest. You excel in faith. You excel in speech and knowledge and all diligence and passion. You're excelling in passion. And you're even excelling in your love for us. Excel also now in this act of grace. This act of giving. The grace of giving is what that means. It's beautiful. When we think about all the things that we strive to excel at, even in the church, like we want to excel in Bible study and Bible knowledge, right? Like we want that and that's there. We want to excel in like personal disciplines, try to be more holy and all that kind of stuff. Like great, that's awesome. But the one area that we tend to neglect is this. When's the last time in a small group you're like, man, how are you excelling in giving? And then how were you held accountable to that? Has anybody ever seen your giving records? Oh no, we can't do that. Actually, I don't know where this says that, actually. Excel in this act of giving. It's beautiful. And it's challenging because what he says next feels manipulative. And it only feels manipulative if our eyes are off of Jesus. I love what he says. I am not saying this as a command. I'm not commanding you. This is not a law. I'm appealing to grace. Rather, by means of the diligence or the passion or the desire of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. Every time I've read this before, like, I always went, man, Paul, talk about a guilt trip. Hey, if you really want to, like, prove to us that you love Jesus, give. That's missing the boat. If you take your eyes off of grace, this will feel manipulative, 100%. But if you keep your eyes on grace, it is beyond beautiful. 
The word sincere, the sincerity of your faith. I love this. I know I've shared this before, but it's a, that word sincere in the Latin is this concept of without wax. And what would be done in the ancient world was sculptors, they, if they made a flaw or a chink in whatever they were sculpting, what they would do because they're too lazy to start over or they didn't want to waste the resources, they would take some wax and fill it in. They would let it harden and then they would sell it. And then whoever bought it would take said statue and more than likely place it outside. And it's hot in the Middle East. And so the sun would come and the wax would melt. To be sincere is to create something without wax. This is real. This is genuine. There's no cover-up. There's no facade. Insincerity is to have a, a facade that when the heat comes, a.k.a. circumstances, the wax melts and your heart's revealed. And that's why Paul's saying, I, I, want, I want to test the sincerity of your love because it's good for you. It's good for you. Test your heart. Does he have your heart? How do we know? By your offering. That's how we'll know. Look at verse 10. In this matter, I'm giving advice. Why? Because it's profitable for you. You had the intention, you had the desire and the passion to do this. In fact, you started it, and it actually even inspired the churches in Macedonia when they saw your passion to give towards this offering, but you didn't follow through. You never completed it. You just had the desire. That's great. Love it, A+. Plus. But we know, as one preacher once said, that <laughs> it's, a, it's a hard saying, but it's very, very true that the road to hell is full and paved with good intention. I have the desire to give a lot. Okay, do it. Fulfill it. It's profitable for you. Because when you do that, guess what? More grace is going to be invested into your life from Jesus. And that's going to create this cycle where then you're going to want to excel even more and more grace towards other people. There becomes now this beautiful, beautiful cycle. And this is where I want to go because I want this to get practical. Because I feel like we covered enough that it's about the heart. Right? You, you guys are seeing that connection that giving in the dollars is about the heart? Because if not, I'm going to keep going. Like, we have to understand this. It's not about the dollar amount. Grace on this side, life on this side of the cross, doesn't live by a fixed percentage. Like, it's got to be this, this, this. That's why Paul said, I'm not commanding you. I'm advising you. I'm appealing to you. Grace doesn't set any fixed mark because grace knows no limits. It knows no bounds because what grace ought to do in our life is it should compel us to want to excel in more grace. So he goes now in chapter 9, verse 6, and this is where we're going to land and where some of this application is going to start to really make, make sense for us Chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. 
whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul is tapping in to a universal principle that God created. Farmers get it. If I sow a few seeds, I can't expect an abundant, harv- an abundant harvest. That makes sense. But if I sow abundantly, my expectations should be that I will reap abundance. This is scripture. And, and I want to give a little bit of a warning here because this is one of the key passages that false teachers and charlatans who promote the health and wealth gospel love to use. But there's, they're missing the point because the promise that they teach is that God will give you more financially or materialistically for your own self-indulgence. Where instead of like receiving whatever blessing from God as he sees fit, we are now playing God and acting sovereign of saying, I'm going to manipulate the system in order to get what I want. God is sovereign, we're not sovereign. Money is oftentimes not the greatest blessing, it could be the greatest curse. God is a good God who gives good gifts to his children. And he loves to give in abundance. So it's not always that. But what we're seeing here, because Paul is talking about money, is that he's going to start talking about why God blesses sometimes and oftentimes financially. It's not for the means of your own self-indulgence. There's a beautiful cycle of generosity that happens. Watch this. Paper. Simple point. The more we give, the more God gives back in return. God is saying clearly, giving to God results in blessing to God. This principle ought to encourage us to want to give beyond our means. Should it not? Wait, wait, wait. So if God's telling me, (laughs) this is crazy, God's telling me that if I sow abundance, I'm going to reap an abundance of God's blessing? Like, is that true? Oh, that's a question you need to answer. We act as if it's not true. But it is true. Only generous Givers, listen, only generous givers will reap the generous blessings from God as related to this principle in this passage. There are specific blessings that God has only designated to people who are going to invest in grace and generosity. That's what scriptures show. That's not to say that other people don't receive grace. They do 100%. But there's a special blessing given to those who choose to excel in the grace of giving. This should inspire us significantly. Verse 7. Each one, each one, each one. You and you and you and you. All of you who call on the name of Jesus, must give as decided in your heart, as you've purposed in your heart, as you've desired in your heart. Like, that's the intention. 
And you don't do this reluctantly like, oh gosh, I wish I didn't have to do this because I really want Madden 24. God loves a cheerful giver. And the Greek of that word cheerful is awesome. It's hilarious. God loves hilarious givers. They're like, this is so fun. They're not being unwise. They're just like, this is so joyful. I'm giving you what God has given me. I want you to share in this. This is great. Come on. Hilarious giving. It doesn't look logical to the world. But this blessing is so significant that what we will reap is this deeper experience of knowing God's love first and foremost. And oftentimes, God does. God does bless us back to give generously. Look at verse 8 through 11. And God is able. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Like, slow down. Ask yourself the question, do I believe that God is able? If I choose to excel in the grace of generosity according to my means, like God does not like demand us or expect us to give beyond our means. Like that's just like, man, this is my voluntary response of love to God. That's what that is. But like if we are at that spot, do we believe that God is able? Is he able Whatever your circumstances right now, do you believe that God is able to make all grace abound to you? Who's the example that we're looking at the churches in Macedonia? Severe persecution, extreme poverty, abundance of joy, extremely generous. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Who's the you? Who's the you? Is it every believer? In general, yes. But specifically in this passage, he's speaking to those who are willing to be generous. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. It's almost like Paul did like, I don't know how else to explain the riches of Christ. Like, I don't know how else to explain this promised blessing that God has for us. Like, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He who supplies the seed, which is God, to the sower, and supplies bread for food, which is God, will also supply and multiply your seed for sowing. What he just said right there is the beauty of generosity. If you sow abundantly, you will reap abundantly. That's the promise. And you reap abundantly, which is the multiplying, so your seed or your material wealth multiplies. Why? So that you may sow even more. So that you may reap other more. In other words, people are experiencing the blessing and experiencing the goodness of God in provision and advancing the kingdom into darkness. This is this beauty of generosity. This is why the health and wealth gospel is straight from the pit of hell. It takes a beautiful blessing from God and turns it and makes it narcissistic. Where the blessing of God and the promise of God in the Bible here makes it about 
others. It's beautiful. Excel in the grace of giving because the promise is you'll never be in want when it deals with righteousness. You will reap a harvest of righteousness, Paul says, in all things, in all acts, generosity and serving and loving because he'll make all grace abound to you in all sufficiency, all times, and all things so that you will abound, have all that you need in every good work. It's beautiful. One of my favorite stories that challenges me to my core is the story of the lady that comes to the house of Simon the leper and she comes not out of compulsion but out of love and desire to worship and she takes the most precious thing that she has on earth and offers it to the most precious thing that she's ever experienced in her life. She takes this vial of perfume, which is more than likely a year plus worth of wages, enough money to feed 5,000 people. And she just pours it at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus accepts it willingly. He defends her when everybody's like, look at this waste. Look at this waste. Could have been given to the poor. And she's like, stop it. And what she did is beautiful. It's preparation for his burial. But it's also like, hey, I'm going to put her as a memorial for all time to show you that when my grace touches your heart, you cannot help but be an extravagant giver. That's a challenge to me. So, church, here's, here's what I want to encourage you to wrestle with. First and foremost, first and foremost, I want you to hear this. Give yourself first to Jesus. We're talking about this. We're talking about money. We're talking about generosity. Not because we're in need financially as a church. We're, you guys are generous. Thank you. We're good. We're talking about it because we know what's at stake. We know, we know the connection between your heart and money. But we also know, as we saw last week, that generosity is a hallmark of a move of God within the people of God. What would it look like if we became a church that's known for our hilarious giving? Give yourself first to the Lord. That's why we're talking about this. We care about your relationship with Jesus. We're not commanding a tithe or any of that stuff. No, 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 no. Give yourself to the Lord first. 
purpose in your heart. Be a cheerful giver because of the grace of God. He became poor. He became poor. He who was rich became poor so that us who were poor could become rich. He came here, took on flesh willfully. He suffered. He was beaten. He experienced human weakness, human limitation. He experienced hunger, thirst, loneliness, misunderstanding, abandonment. He experienced all of it. He was rich. The riches of heaven, the glory was his. And he became poor by taking on flesh to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Willingly, joyfully, because he loves us. He was investing his grace into humanity so that we could have life. Give yourself to him. Give yourself to him. The rest starts to follow. So that's where I'm going to say the second thing. And I want you to hear my heart on this. Give yourself to the church. What I mean by that is you've got to understand that the church is a community of believers that have an uncommon unity through the Holy Spirit. We are a body. If this is all we consider church, we fail. Give yourself to the church. I think there's something important when Paul says, you gave yourself first to the Lord and then to us. We are investing into the church because that is the, the vehicle that Jesus intended to use to push the darkness back. Give according to your ability in proportion to your income. This is where we say we have these four little things just for you to consider. Nothing to something, something to planned, plan to percentage, percentage to voluntary. It's just a suggestion. It's just a rubric, a guide to help us plan and to think through how to do this. But this is what I just want us to land on and think about as we leave this morning. Same thing I said last week. Imagine what could happen if Austin Oaks Church chooses to excel in the grace of giving. Because of his love for us, not out of reluctance or compulsion, but because we want to sow seeds to reap a harvest of righteousness. We want to see the darkness pushed back. We want to see lives transformed. What would happen? I believe this church would overflow in an abundance of joy, love, and power, and the world on the outside would look at how crazy we are and be absolutely attracted to the move of God. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that you speak boldly, you speak clearly. I thank you that you never guilt us into action. You do speak truth, and truth is important, but it's always, always matched up, paired perfectly with grace. 
Lord, I just ask that you would help us search our own hearts. Help us to reflect on you, Jesus, as the perfect embodiment of love. Love is not feelings. Feelings can oftentimes be a byproduct of love, but love is sacrifice. It's giving of oneself for another. Jesus, thank you for willingly becoming poor so that we could become rich. You emptied yourself. You didn't strive to be flaunting who you were on earth, but you emptied yourself, taking on the form of a servant, washing feet, humbled yourself to the point of death. And it was the joy that was set before you that you endured the cross. The grace of God given to us. Lord, we pray that that grace would get deep into our hearts and it would compel us to want to excel in grace. You are so good. God, you are so good. Every gift, every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father in heaven. No good thing do you withhold. You want us to test you because you want to bless us. You want us to be dependent on you. God, I pray that you would use this last song as a, an opportunity to minister to our hearts and also for us to declare by faith that we are choosing to believe you are in fact good, that you are able to make all grace abound at all times in all things. Thank you, Jesus, in Christ's name.